Yes, good morning. Good morning. It is really uh, just time's flying, I'll say. It's really hard to, to take it all in, but uh, this, this Thursday is Thanksgiving, and I truly can't believe I'm saying that. This, is, this week we celebrate Thanksgiving. Uh, it's a special day set aside in our nation. that has been a great tradition for a long time to be mindful of God's blessings and just to to thank him. Uh, it started so long ago, this tradition. Uh, and, and I know there, there are other places that have times of special Thanksgiving, but here in our country, it, it goes back to the 1600s. The, the pilgrims and the Puritans came over on the Mayflower in 1620, and uh, they had a tough winter, and not too many survived. It was a small group in 1621, and they... Uh, at the harvest time, celebrated. They celebrated God's provision, and uh, they had William Bradford, who they had made the governor of their colony, and uh, they just expressed thanks to God. And that tradition, it was birth. Those are the roots, and we observe it. And it's a great, great, uh, it's a great thing to do, to just be mindful. We have much to be grateful and thankful for and our focus this morning is that it's gratitude it's thankfulness and we're going to be in a passage in Luke 17 and also Psalm number 50 if you put your fingers in those two passages in the Bible Luke 17 is familiar you might say oh I've heard this before you preach on this every Thanksgiving that's okay we go to Luke 2 every Christmas. It's all right. It's all right. God's word is still rich. It's still alive. And though I'm going to touch on Luke 17 today, I'm going to tell you this is not a rerun. It's not a rerun. Uh, there is, I think, something new, a different take for you this morning. And to answer this question, are you the one? Are you the one? So keep that question in mind as we jump into Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19, a familiar passage when it comes to giving thanks, and uh, we will talk about it a little bit and then move into Psalm number 50 and tie it in, and uh, hopefully, you'll, hopefully you'll get the connection. Luke 17, 11 through 19. Uh, Jesus is traveling, and it says, now on his way to Jerusalem... Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go, 
Your faith has made you well. So Jesus was traveling. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to go to Jerusalem. There were feast days. The temple was there. But here he is between Samaria and Galilee, and he's entering a village near the border of Samaria. I don't know which side of the border he was on, whether he's going into a Samaritan village, whether he's going into a Galilean village. But he is there in this border zone, and 10 men with leprosy see him. And leprosy at the time, it was a very feared disease because at that time, in Jesus' time, the first century, there was no cure, there was no treatment. Imagine just for a moment living then, living during that time and having such a disease. That would be a dreadful thing. It's a death sentence, but it's not an immediate death sentence to be stricken with leprosy. It's a slow, very slow death sentence. In a way, it's worse than just dying there on the spot because of the suffering and the pain that go along with it. Skin lesions and ulcers, they multiply. It's disfiguring. Uh, Fingers and toes uh, begin to waste away. Hands and feet waste away. Over time, a person with this disease can become totally unrecognizable. It's like being dead, but still being alive. It's been described as being a living corpse. Now imagine that life. Just think about how awful that would be. And you're living one day, you're enjoying life, life's good, and, and suddenly you, you begin to feel maybe a numbness in, in your extremities, your fingers, your toes, and then you see a bump on your skin. Soon those feelings and, and, and those bumps increase until you just can't hide it. And what happens then? You are separated from everything. You're put out of your house. You're put out of your family. You are put out of your city and community. You're shunned by your community, completely separated from the living. And there's no hope of ever going back. That's how it was. Now, if you had a hope, consider you're in that position, completely ostracized, You have this dreadful disease, but you have some hope. There's some glimmer that possibly things could change. You might be healed. I am guessing you'd probably take advantage of it. I think I would. I'd reach out for anything that could help. Well, these 10 lepers had hope. They saw Jesus. His reputation had preceded him. But they were required to keep their distance. If they came too close to people, the the rule was they had to cry out unclean to alert people, to stay away. They couldn't approach Jesus. So they shouted, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And Jesus responded, he shouted back, go show yourselves to the priests. It's now a test of their faith. He didn't heal them immediately. He told them, go see the priests. Now they didn't register a complaint. They set off to go see priests. And why? Why do they need to go see priests? 
Well, that's exactly the procedure in the Old Testament. It's the procedure that's laid out in Leviticus 13 for somebody who has uh, some kind of skin disease uh, for the for that condition they were commanded to go see a priest you have some kind of defiling skin issue see the priest the priest will examine you and he will look to see if you're clean or you're unclean and he'll make that declaration to you and now the fact that jesus sent them to see priests it implies something it implies they're jewish because he says go see the priests if if they weren't Jewish, why would he be sending them to Jewish priests and following the Jewish law given in Leviticus? So it implies these are Jewish men, yet we know at least one of them. One of them was not a Jew, but a Samaritan. And, and Jews and Samaritans, you read, you read John's gospel, it says explicitly, Jews and Samaritans do not associate with one another. But you know, if you got some kind of pain or shared suffering now these these petty racial hatreds they tend to go away you know these men had been banned from their homes and their communities they had been completely ostracized what did they do they formed their own community they were really didn't really matter if uh, somebody was a different race ethnicity whatever that went away when your common bond was pain and suffering they stuck together. So, I don't know how many Jewish men were in the bunch. It might have been nine. But they begin to go to the priests. They're obedient to what Jesus said. They know the Old Testament. They go, well, the Samaritan sticks with them. They had their, their common bond. I'm going with these guys. And what's a priest going to do anyway? What is a priest going to do when he sees we have leprosy? It's obvious. Leviticus 13 said, not only do you have to shout unclean, but you have to tear your clothes. You have to keep your hair unkept. You had to make it obvious that you were different from those around you so they wouldn't get close and pick up this disease. These guys are in ripped clothes. They are, their, their hair's unkept and they're off to see the priest. The priests are certainly going to say, you are unclean. But in faith and in obedience, these ten men went. And in a faith and obedience as they were walking, a miracle. They were restored. Their disease was cured. They were healed. Think for a moment about that. Again, picture if you had this disease that had completely altered your life imagine the celebration they realized they're all healed it must have been pandemonium and i my take i can't imagine any of them continued on to see the priest now maybe some did i don't know we don't know we don't have the details what i imagine is they just went off running home there was going to be a great reunion with family they all took off except one except a samaritan he turned around. He went back to Jesus. And for the first time in perhaps years, the man can approach without having to shout the dreaded words, unclean. Instead, what is he doing? He's shouting praise. He's shouting praise to God. I, 
this Samaritan, I don't know how much he knew about the, uh, the Torah, the Old Testament, the Psalms and the prophets, but I, he was doing Psalm 100, wasn't he? Making a joyful noise unto the Lord. He is shouting, not unclean, but he's shouting to God, just praises. And then he throws himself at Jesus' feet and he begins to thank him. Now Luke recorded the words of Jesus and they're some questions. First, this guy's at his feet, thanking him profusely. And Jesus says, we're not all 10 cleansed. Where are the other nine? I think there's, can you feel that Jesus might be just a little indignant here? After all, leprosy, devastating Limbs are falling off. You're a walking corpse. And you've been healed instantly. You've received an undeniable miracle. Where are the other nine? Jesus then, he asks a third question. Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? There's a little nuance in these words that Luke recorded. According to Luke, Jesus didn't call the man a Samaritan, but he called him a foreigner. And the Greek word there for foreigner is the same Greek term that hung on a sign displayed in the inner courts of the temple that said, no foreigner shall enter in. Whoever's caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. In other words, you're a foreigner. You can only come certain certain distance in the temple. You can't get close to God. You can't come into God's presence. You need to stay separated. And if you try to get close, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be your life. To the Jews, no foreigner was worthy of coming that close into the temple. No foreigner was worthy of approaching God. Now, Jesus seemed to be making a point here by not calling the man a Samaritan, but a foreigner, intentionally highlighting his unworthiness in the eyes of Judaism. Yet the Samaritan, an unworthy foreigner, had approached Jesus, and he had worshiped at his feet, and he thanked him for his deliverance. And you know, there's no rebuke from Jesus. Jesus didn't say, get out, get away from me, you foreigner. Jesus didn't tell him to go away. Why? Because the arms of Jesus are open to all. The arms of Jesus are open to all who come to him sincerely, humbly. They throw themselves at his feet. And then Jesus speaks to the man. Not a question now, but he makes a declaration. Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. And this is kind of a curious conclusion. The man had already been healed. He'd been healed before he approached Jesus, just like the other nine. They had all been healed. He'd, he, he'd been healed. He came back to Jesus without disease. He came back to Jesus clean. He had been healed of leprosy before he approached If the man had already been healed, what is Jesus talking about? Why would he say, rise and go, your faith has made you well? It just seems a little odd. Why would Jesus say that? And for an answer, for an answer, let's get into Psalm 50. Why is Jesus saying, rise and go, 
Your faith has made you well. Psalm number 50, let's, let's read the first uh, 13 verses. Psalm 50 says this. The mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and he will not be silent. A fire devours before him and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me this consecrated people who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens proclaimed his righteousness for he is a God of justice. Listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am your God. I bring no charges against you concerning your sacrifices or concerning your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. I have no need of a bull from your stall or goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? So what, what are these first 13 verses of Psalm 50 telling us? Well, the first part, the first seven verses, they convey God's in control. God is the creator. God is overall. He created the earth. He spoke it into existence. He calls to the earth and it rotates. To us, we see the sun rise and the sun set. God summons the earth, and it does what it does. Now, that's not anti-science. That is acknowledging creator God. He set all the laws of physics into motion. He spoke it into existence. The world spins. To us, the sun rises, it sets, and it goes on and conveys his mighty power that he is just and he is righteous. He is a judge who comes like a blazing fire. The judge who has a word for his people. People who have made a covenant with him. And he says, I'm going to testify against you. First time, if you were first time hearing that, I think I'd just be shaking in my shoes. God's going to testify against us. Sounds really ominous, kind of scary. And then he says, I bring no charges. I bring no charges. Ooh, it's kind of a relief. God came like a burning fire. He says, I'm going to testify against you, ah, but I bring no charges. God didn't condemn them for their sacrifices and their offerings. But he continued. He continued. And he said, I don't need them. I don't need your sacrifices and offerings. Why? The whole world is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills are mine. Every bird in the air is mine. Even the bugs, even the bugs are mine. Do you think I eat and drink like you? I, do I need to eat and drink like you? What are you thinking? That's kind of where it gets there in, in verse 13. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? If you're thinking that, you're just a little off. And the point here is being driven God doesn't need sacrifices and offerings. 
he just, he, he doesn't need them. So now let's continue. Let's continue with the psalm. And in the Bible I use here, verse 13, it ends at the bottom of the page. So I'm reading this, and I get to verse 13, and it's, it's just this point is being driven home. God doesn't need anything. He, he, everything is his. And I'm kind of expecting that to continue. So I flip the page, and I read uh, verse 14 and 15. And let's, let's read those verses. Will it continue? Will God still be on this? I don't need your sacrifices. Everything is mine. It says, sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. Wow, it takes a turn here. It kind of shifts. This is the point of the entire psalm. This is the main point. It's right here in the middle of the psalm. And God is stressed. I don't need your sacrifices. I don't need your offerings. But he says, bring me thanks. Bring me thanks. Make thanksgiving your sacrifice and your offering. What does God want? He says, I, I want true thanks. I want your promises, your vows. You, you make a vow, I want your promises fulfilled. Remember, this is being addressed to God's covenant people. He said, you, the people who have made covenant, fulfill your vows, be promise keepers. I want you to trust me in your times of trouble so I can rescue you and you can give me glory. Humbly, humbly, sincerely, offering thanks to God. It's connected with rescue. It's connected with salvation. Now, now the next lines, verse 16 and onward. These, these verses are directed toward those who are not in covenant with God. It's, they're, they're directed towards the wicked. They are some pretty harsh words if you read them. God calls the wicked to account and he warns them to recognize him and to consider all that's been said to the righteous. And then the psalm closes, verse number 23, those who sacrifice thank offerings honor me. And to the blameless, I will show my salvation. Now, that's the second time in the psalm where it identifies a work of God connected to giving thanks, to having a grateful heart. Earlier, it was the word rescue. Here, at the end of the psalm, which again was directed to those who are outside the covenant, but God's beckoning them, come on. Here at the end, it's salvation. with a humble heart, with a sincere heart, offer God thanksgiving and he will show you his salvation. Wow, that is amazing. It wouldn't be far-fetched. It would not be far-fetched to imagine that Jesus was thinking of these very lines of Psalm number 50 as he stood over that Samaritan worshiping at his feet. It's not far-fetched to imagine he's thinking, those who offer the, the sacrifice of thanksgiving, those who sacrifice thank offerings, honor me, and I will show them my salvation. And then what did Jesus say? 
rise and go. Your faith has made you well. There's another nuance here in these these words recorded uh, by, by Luke. The Greek word for well, it primarily means to save or to rescue one who is in danger of destruction. Jesus it could have been recorded using a word way different, a word that really truly meant physical healing. But that's not what he did. This word that's there translated well in the NIV, it's, it's used just a handful of times tied with physical healing, but nearly a hundred times about being saved. Nearly a hundred times comes across as saved. Now, many English Bibles, they'll translate this this verse, rise and go, your faith has saved you. Many of the English Bibles will, will translate that way. One of the Bibles, the Geneva Bible, which predates the King James by at least 50 years, it was likely one of the Bibles on the Mayflower, William Bradford quoted from the Geneva Bible. And it reads, rise and go, your faith has saved you. Salvation. Salvation there. As this this man had offered his thanks, a sincere and humble heart. Yeah, I know this passage doesn't speak to repentance, but I know this, Jesus knows. Jesus knows the heart that is pouring out before him. and, And the sincerity in that heart. We read about uh, a guy called Zacchaeus who was a, a chief tax collector. And when he was saved and Jesus said, salvation's come into your home. We don't read about repentance, but we know he was dancing for joy and having a party. Jesus knows the repentant heart. And this man offering his thanksgiving, it, it, it comes across that Jesus is telling him, your faith has saved you salvation from sin and how does sin even figure in in this passage leprosy in the bible it was associated with sin miriam moses sister gehazi who was the servant of the prophet elijah king uzziah a king these all had leprosy and they all received leprosy as a judgment of god for sin They're all judged for their sin, stricken with leprosy. Now, it doesn't mean that every case of leprosy was directly correlated to someone's sin, but that's the way that the Jews saw it. That's the way they viewed leprosy. Equated it with sin. The the, the fatal disease of leprosy meant you were a sinner. And all of us, all of us have been infected with the fatal disease of sin. The the infection that is a wasting disease and leads to death called sin. It's touched us all. Leprosy like sin causes separation. Those 10 lepers, they stood at a distance from Jesus. And that is the effect of sin. It's a separator. It separates from God. And like leprosy was in those days, incurable sin is an incurable disease. And I say incurable in the sense that mankind can't cure it. We don't have the cure 
uh, for sin. It has been given to us. But yet people try their own methods. They'll try. They'll try by being good enough. They'll try by following rules, regulations, ceremonies. But what does Psalm number 50 say? What does it say? God has no need of a bull from your stall or goats from your pens. You can keep on sacrificing. But getting right with God can't be earned. It can't be bought. It doesn't come through the the many uh, sacrifices. So where's the hope? Is there any hope? Yes, there is. There is a cure. There is a cure. One cure. A single remedy exists. And the Samaritan who threw himself at Jesus' feet, he applied the cure. He applied the cure by coming and and offering himself at the feet of Jesus with a humble and a sincere heart of thanksgiving. And he, he, he thanked Jesus for his rescue. And Jesus is the only one. He's the only one who offers salvation from this fatal disease for sin. The man had been cured of his leprosy, but now he was getting a remedy far greater. Jesus telling him, I have salvation for you. And it's only by Jesus that our sins are forgiven. Our sins that were like scarlet are white as snow because of Jesus. Jesus, who is the way and the truth, and the life. Jesus, who said, I'm the resurrection and the life. The the lepers had learned of the healing power of Jesus. He was their only hope, so they cried out. But only one, only one was confirmed to be saved. He had one move. He had one response. And that was to throw himself the feet of Jesus. Are you like the nine? Or are you the one? The nine were healed. They were cleansed. No doubt they were ecstatic. They might have been off to talk to family and have a a, a joyful reunion. Maybe they went on to tell the priest. But what they didn't do, what they didn't do is recognize Jesus had the power to save From a distance, they cried out to Jesus, and from a distance, they remained. But one, but one turned back. Are you the one? The one turned back. He glorified God. He made that joyful shout. He came into the presence of Jesus. He fell on his face. And what did he do? He worshiped at Jesus' feet, and he thanked him. He was thankful. He was grateful. He poured out his thanks. He saw that Jesus not only healed him and cleansed him, but the barrier was, uh, of separation was gone. He could, without any interference, enter into the presence of grace, the grace of Almighty God, and Jesus talked with him. It seems that so many people who called on Jesus for forgiveness, and they've said, forgive my sins. They missed this. They missed this part about a relationship. Jesus was engaging the man. So many miss this relational aspect of salvation. And how does it start? It begins with thanksgiving. 
begins with thanksgiving. If you've been brought back to God. And let me just say, we have. We're here. We're covenant people. We're covenant people by the sacrifice of Jesus, the one and only sacrifice. Psalm 50 said, God is calling out to the people who have made a covenant with him by sacrifice. You are part of that covenant by recognizing the sacrifice of Jesus. The Samaritan recognized the grace that was given him, and he threw himself at the feet of Jesus, praising God with a heart overflowing with gratitude. And what did Jesus do? He declared, you're saved. You're saved. Are you that one? Can you say, yet not I, but Christ through me, Christ in me. Don't neglect to pour out your thanksgiving at the feet of Jesus who saved you from destruction. Those who sacrifice thank offerings honor me, and I show them my salvation. You want to be assured of your salvation? You want to be assured of your salvation every day? You want to be secure in it? You want to see it? Have you ever been at a place where I just don't know if I can't see my salvation? Just start thanking Jesus. Just start thanking him. Be one. Be one who daily pours out your thanksgiving on Jesus. And you'll see your salvation. You will see your salvation every single day. Are you the one? Let's stand and pray. Let's stand and pray. And only you can answer that question. And if you need to, uh, if you need to get uh, reattuned to this idea of thanking Jesus on a daily basis, do it. Be reminded of what this one man did and how Jesus responded. Rise and go. Your faith has saved you. Father, in the name of Jesus, we say thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that though our sin was scarlet, it's now as white as snow because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. God, just encourage us. God, remind us to cast ourselves at the feet of Jesus with thanksgiving and gratitude, to make a joyful noise unto the Lord, to shout praises to you for your salvation, for your forgiveness of sin. God, may we be people who offer you thanks for that every day. May we be, and God, we trust you. You will be the God who set the earth in motion and will show us our salvation, assure us of our salvation. Thank you, God. We're grateful. And God, I ask if there is anyone in this room who has struggled with it, with the assurance of their salvation, or any who might not even know, who who haven't even called on the name of Jesus, God, I pray, I just pray in their hearts, they could be at your feet, Jesus. Crying out to you, thanking you for your sacrifice. May that heart truly be genuine and humble and repentant and have one and only desire to follow you, Jesus, and to put the life 
behind them. You can cure us. You're the remedy for sin. God, I thank you for that. Bless everyone here as they go. May this week be a great week for them. Lord, on Thursday, may we just be reminded, may you mark it indelibly in our hearts. You and you alone are our salvation, and we thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, God. Again, it's in Jesus' name. We ask it, we pray it. Amen. Amen.